Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 20. One of my, one of my favorite movies uh, is Shawshank Redemption. Now, if you watch it, watch it on TBS. If you don't know what that means, then don't watch the real version. There's two ways you can tell a story. One way that most stories are told is in the normal uh, plot, rising action, and resolution coming at the end. That's a normal way and often way we tell a story. So if you haven't seen The Shawshank Redemption, I'm about to tell you how the movie ends right now. So you had about 20 years to watch it. If you missed it, then, then sorry, I guess. Basically, it's about a man who's wrongly accused of a crime, he goes to jail, and for 20 years he digs a tunnel. And you don't know about this tunnel till the very end, and at the end of the movie, he goes out the tunnel, he crawls through a sewer pipe of poo, gets out, he goes and steals the warden's money that he laundered, and he lives happily ever after in Mexico. Okay? That's the movie. <laughs> if you don't... But that comes at the end of the movie. You find this out at the very end of the movie, right? If you knew this at the beginning, it would change the way that you watched the entire film. Well, in a very real way, in our passage this morning, the end of the story comes first. The end of the story about how things are going to end comes at the beginning of the story. And then what we see is the immediate reaction of the disciples after they've already heard what's going to happen at the end. So if you have your Bibles... We're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 34. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, and be raised on the third day. Then, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the Ted heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you now. And we ask that you would make your word to come alive to us. We pray that we would behold the wonderful things that you have for us in your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let us be enamored with the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Help me as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at two points today in this sermon. Number one, point one, why Jesus came. And point two, how it should change us. Point one, why Jesus came. Point two, how it should change us. Look again at verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19 says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then again, verse 28 The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These two passages, in a very real way, are a synopsis of the entire mission of Jesus Christ. The primary message of the whole Bible in about 20 words. The central idea of this verse is that Jesus Christ is going to die. He's going to be condemned in the place of his people. He's going to give his life as a ransom in the place of his disciples. Give his life as a ransom for many. Few words that really help us to get the full meaning of the gospel. His life, his death, and his sacrificial substitutionary death. Let's look at some of the words that are here and just unpack them so we can understand why Jesus came. Why Jesus came first, the word ransom here. The word ransom is here. It's not so much the idea of like a ransom note from a kidnapping or something like that, but the Greek word behind it has a more idea of atoning for or to cover over. To cover over, to atone for, to cover over the sins of mankind, to ransom them, to buy them back, to bring them back. It was a cosmic debt. That we are under. Our sin is worthy of the wrath of God against us. It's worthy of the justice of God. It's worthy of a holy God condemning us. But Jesus Christ atones for us. As Tim Keller says, the slavery was a cosmic slavery. Therefore, the ransom for that slavery had to be a cosmic ransom. The trouble that we found ourselves in was a cosmic one. It was a sin against a holy God, and only a holy God could be enough to ransom us back. Second, it says that he was going to be condemned. He was going to be condemned. The Greek word behind that is katakrino, that there was a judgment against him. There was a judgment against him. But again, he stands in our place as a substitute because there is no judgment against him. He's the innocent, righteous Son of God who lived a perfect life of obedience. There is no judgment against Him. 
So the judgment against him was our judgment in our place. He was going to be condemned and handed over to the Gentiles. Again, the word in verse 28, 4. It's a very powerful word. He's to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a substitute. It's in the place of. It's instead of. And then again, in the middle of the passage, in the middle of this mother's request for her sons to sit at his right and at his left, he asks, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? What is this cup? What is this cup that Jesus speaks of here? The cup. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, is so often symbolizing God's judgment. Are they able to drink the cup of God's judgment? In Ezekiel 23, 33, this cup is called the cup of horror and desolation. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. In Habakkuk 2, it's called the cup of shame. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in Yahweh's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon you. In Jeremiah 25, 15, it's called the cup of God's fury. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand the cup of this wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Again, it's called a cup of wrath. In Isaiah 51, wake yourselves, wake yourselves, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord this cup of wrath, who have drunk from the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. That's the cup that he's asking if they can drink. The cup of the judgment of God against the wickedness of the world. You'll remember... Later, when Jesus is in the garden, before he's going to be arrested and put on trial, he prays a prayer. And he prays this in Mark 34, 36. He says, my, sorrow, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed if it was possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father... All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. Jesus Christ was facing the cup of the judgment of God. And the cup that brings terror, horror, desolation, shame, fury, and staggering wrath. This cup he was to drink. And the dread that Jesus experiences here, he says his soul is sorrowful even unto death. The dread that he experiences is not because the fear of, his, of this dark destiny, but rather it is the impending reality that the one who's wholly lived for his father will soon be cut off. The one who's wholly lived in perfect communion with his father from eternity past, who has perfectly obeyed him, 
The impending fear was that he would be cut off. And despite the disciples' claim, they cannot drink the cup. They cannot drink the cup. They cannot drink the cup. Only Jesus Christ can drink the cup for us in our place as a substitute. And the reason that they cannot drink the cup is rushing into the foreground in verse 28 that Jesus himself is giving his life for them. If they could give their lives for themselves, then Jesus would never have had to come. But Jesus will take the wrath. He'll take the judgment. He'll take the penalty. It's been said, in a certain sense, this is true. It's been said that God could create all the cosmos with a word. He could say, sun, and there is sun. He could say, water, and there is water. He could say, earth, and there is earth. But to say, forgive, requires a cross. To say, forgive, requires a cross. Because God is a just and holy God, His justice must stand. He can't just go about willy-nilly forgiving people just because It's against his holiness. It's against his justice. He would no longer be righteous. So to say forgive them, to say forgive them requires a substitutionary death. Requires for his justice and his wrath to be satisfied. That's why Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come because the disciples, because you, because I cannot drink that cup. We have to have one that stands in our place and drinks it for us. We have to have one that will come and give his life as a ransom for many. But you know, if this sounds, if this sounds somewhat like a, a bloodthirsty oligarch, remember that in all other Religions, all other ancient constructs of who God is, an idea of a wrathful God is understandable, but the idea of a wrathful God who will assuage his own wrath in the place of his people is absolutely inconceivable. It's absolutely inconceivable. And the second thing, to bring it down a notch, this idea of substitutionary sacrifice we intuitively know. We intuitively know that all love is a substitutionary sacrifice. We intuitively know that the way that we actually love another human being is to lay down our rights for their sake, to give ourselves to them. That's what we see when we look at a beautiful marriage, when we see a couple who've been loving each other for 30, 40 years, and there is a glow about them. We just know that they've given themselves to the other. There's no other way to obtain that kind of relationship, that kind of glow, that kind of depth, that kind of love between two people, except if each of the parties, husband and wife, man and woman, gave themselves to each other, laid down their rights for the other's sake so that the other might live. All love is ultimately a substitutionary sacrifice. We know this in the way that we raise our children, of course. We know this in the way that we raise our children. That in order to see them become flourishing, healthy, educated, sensitive, kind adults, 
we have to give ourselves to them. We have to spend time with them, be with them, love them, read to them, pray with them, teach them, listen to them, hug them. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. All love at its core, I think we intuitively know this, is a substitutionary sacrifice. And it's that way. And it's that way with our Lord Jesus. Jesus presents here a true reversal in values. Jesus says that greatness is found in service rather than greatness found in power, prestige, and authority. Jesus says that whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all because the preeminent value of the kingdom of God is service and sacrifice. It's upside down from the way that the world conceives of it, right? We think that the way to greatness is through pride and power. It's through pride and power. And Jesus completely reverses the way that we think. Jesus had to come to absorb the wrath of God for us, and he had to show, come to show us the way to true human flourishing. Jesus has a greater glory, it'll say in Philippians chapter 2, that there's a glory that is about Jesus when we see him and behold him because he's the God who doesn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Because Jesus is not a grasping kind of God. He's the kind of God that gives himself away. The Son of God suffered unto death. Not that men might not suffer, but that our sufferings might be like his. So that's why Jesus came. Point two, how should it change us? So Jesus just lays out this. He lays out the centrality of the entire Bible for us here in 20 words. That he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. So how do the disciples respond? What's the first thing that they do? The first thing that they say. Let me illustrate it like this. There's a, you may have heard this before, but there's a, there's a famous college admission essay, essay by a man named Hugh Gallagher. And he was trying to get into NYU. And the question was this, and this is how he answered. The question was, are there any significant experiences you've had or any accomplishments that you've realized that helped define you as a person? And he says this, I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch break, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write open award-winning operas. I manage my time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines without, with unflagging speed. I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. <laughs> I am an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. <laughs> Using only a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I'm the subject of numerous documentaries. When I'm bored, I build suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy urban hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I am an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, 
and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. Last summer, I toured New Jersey with a traveling centrifugal force demonstration. I bat 400. Children, trust me. I can hurl tennis rackets at moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I sleep once a week, and when I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. And he goes on, and he goes on, and he says, yet, I have not yet been to college. (laughs) We laugh, yes. But seriously, every other worldview under the sun leads us to think of human greatness in terms of pride and power. And the problem when we look at the disciples here is that it's describing us. We can look into the heart of things. We can look into the center of the reason that the universe exists for the glory of the Son of God redeeming sinners. We can look at it, we can ponder it, we can hear it every single week, and it doesn't sink in. Look, the mother's question is... It's, it's, it's three things at least. It's, it's cowardly, it's commendable, and it's also condemnable. One commentator puts it like this. It's cowardly and that it's not so much her question as her boy's question. She's not the coward, they are. Notice that when Jesus replies, he goes on in verse 22, he talks around her. <laughs> he talks to them. Are you guys able to drink of this cup? just kind of moves her to the side. I know that's you two back there that are talking to me. They're acting bash, like bashful school children on the playground, pushing their bravest friend over to the girls. Go ask Susie if she'll go to the dance with me. And then cowering behind her mom's skirt, does Jesus roll his eyes? Does he think to himself, you're getting your mother to ask your question? Instead, he asks them if they have the courage to drink the cup. And then at the end of the passage... Of course, it says that the ten are indignant. So you've got two that are posturing and jockeying for power and prestige, and then you've got the other ten who are really ticked off about it. Right in light, right after Jesus has just told them and is telling them what he's going to do for them in their place and on their behalf, and they just simply don't get it. And we are the same way. We are the same way. We can look into the heart of things. We can hear of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. We can hear of his life, death, and resurrection. We can hear of the mercy that draws us, the tender Savior who calls us to himself. We can hear it, and it doesn't trickle down. But it should. It should. Here's some ways. Here's some ways that it should trickle down into our lives and hearts. It should give to us a relational humility. It should give to us a relational humility. You know, we've, I've counseled many of you over the last several years in marriage counseling and other counseling situations. And I can say that the number one issue I've seen affecting marriage is a lack of forgiveness. 
is a lack of forgiveness. And what this passage shows us, if it shows us anything, is it shows us the radical, unmerited, merciful forgiveness that is given to us by Jesus Christ. If I were to sit down with you this afternoon and you're going to share a marriage struggle with me, I would ask you two questions. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that you are not getting what you deserve? You deserve torment and wrath and hell, and you are not getting it. Do you believe that? And most of you would say yes. The next question, then what idols in your heart are preventing that truth and reality from going down deep? What obstacles in your heart, what narratives are you believing that's preventing that truth from going down deep into your heart? For these guys, what was it? It was a desire for power and pride. It was a desire for acclaim. It was a desire for prestige. Yeah, thanks for the whole gospel thing, but I need to have prestige. I need to be on the right or the left. I need to be seen as someone who has worth, someone who has value, someone who has significance by those around me. So often that's one of the reasons we don't forgive in our marriages. We don't forgive in our marriages because we're holding on to some kind of idol in our heart that we think promises us happiness. Because that's what idols do. Idols are thieves, they're liars, they're destroyers. Idols promise something, they overpromise and they always underdeliver. An idol always overpromises and underdelivers in your heart. We think that by holding on to something, by holding on to our reputation, this person wronged me. We think that by holding on to our reputation, then we'll find worth, then we'll find value, then we'll find happiness and flourishing. And it's not true. It's not true. And when you find those idols, the way to route them out is to repent of them specifically. Not just repent in general, God forgive me for my sins. God forgive me that I'm a proud man and I hold on to my reputation and I think that if I have my reputation, then I'll have worth, then I'll have value, then I'll have happiness. God forgive me that push the gospel down into my heart. So that I see that my value, my worth is because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Listen to Bonhoeffer on forgiveness. He says, if you've ever really forgiven somebody, forgiven some real wrong, you'll know that all forgiveness is suffering. If you say, I forgave and I didn't suffer, it really wasn't that serious of a wrong. But if you've ever truly been wronged and you've forgiven it, then you've suffered. Because all forgiveness is a form of suffering. If someone has wronged you deeply, there is an indelible sense of debt, an injustice, a feeling that you can't just shrug it off. And once you sense this deep injustice, this debt, there's only two things you can do. One is you can make the perpetrator pay. You can find ways to make the perpetrator suffer and pay down the debt. Or number two, you can forgive. Those are the only options. See, the gospel has come into your life to bring relational humility. It's come into your life to bring relational humility. Listen to Bill Farley, who spoke at the parenting conference a couple weeks ago. This is in his new book on, on marriage. He says, For many years I took my sins against God lightly, but my wife's sins against me seriously. I didn't see my sin as God saw it. 
so I didn't see why I should forgive. Then, 14 years in our marriage, I began reading the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards helped me to see the holiness of God and the enormity of my personal sin. When I saw the Mount Everest of sin for which God had forgiven me, I understood that even if my wife rejected me completely, her sin would be a hill by comparison. How could I deliberately resent my wife when her offenses against me were so small by comparison? Blindness to the enormity of my sin was responsible for my unwillingness to forgive. Pride is the root of most bitterness. Pride makes me see my sin with 2300 fuzziness and my spouse's with 2020 clarity. This kind of self righteousness is deadly to a marriage, it demotivates forgiveness. We say, You don't understand what my spouse did to me, and I don't. But if God exacted the same just standard of justice from what you demand from your mate, you'd spend eternity in hell. You see, Farley's point is by glaring deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ to see that it took the suffering of the Son of God to free us. We don't deserve the grace that we've received. And we have to keep pressing that down into our hearts We don't deserve the grace we've received. It's like a radioactive isotope. It can begin to melt the cancerous aspects of our own unforgiveness. It melts the cancer. It begins to shrink the tumor. It's the only option. It's the only tool. It's the only resource that God has given us. And he's given us an enormous one. It's the love of his son, Jesus Christ. And if it melted these disciples, if it, when it, when it, if it grabbed their heart, the question would just come off the table. They wouldn't say, who gets to sit at your right and who gets to sit at your left? And the ten wouldn't be indignant. They would say, the son of God loved me and he's giving himself up for me. I have everything I need. The gospel gives to us relational Humility. The gospel also gives us psychological humility. It gives us mental freedom, mental humility. We shouldn't just look at these guys and say, look at those idiots. Because we're sitting at the center of the story. We're sitting at the center of this story. The normal way of thinking is pride, power, and ego. I don't have to teach my young children to think in terms of pride, power, ego, and their own self-rights. They somehow naturally know that from birth. You know, one of the ways that this manifests itself, this psychological humility that the gospel brings, if you don't have it, one of the ways that it manifests itself is in anxiety and worry. I'm going to say something here that maybe you've never considered, or maybe you think this is a mean way to put it. But real worry and anxiety is deep down a very arrogant disposition. Real worry and anxiety is an arrogant disposition because it says, I know how my life should go. I know how my life should go. We can't worry, we can't have anxiety without in some way being smug about the direction of our lives. And only the cross can give us the kind of humility that says, if we know the end of the story, We know at the end of Shawshank there's a tunnel that leads to paradise in Mexico. If we know that at the end of the story, 
we will spend eternity with God in his presence, then we can relax and exhale a little bit now. It brings to us a psychological humility. Which brings us to the question of how do we get it? How do we get it? I said a moment ago that there is no other secret formula. There's no magic incantation. It's simply the grace and mercy that's ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One author, David Mathis, at Desiring God, he called it standing in the paths of grace. We have to stand in the paths of grace. Listen to what Mathis says. He says, I can flip a switch but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I can't make the water flow. He says, there will be no light or no liquid refreshment without somebody else providing it. And so it is, in a limited sense, for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We don't make the grace flow. But God has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open in case it's there. Our God is lavish in his grace, often liberally dispensing his favor without even the least bit of cooperation or preparation on our part. But he also has his regular channels. And we can routinely avail ourselves of these revealed paths of blessings or we can neglect them to our detriment. Sometimes he's only saying, flip the switch. The electricity is going to be there. Sometimes he's just saying, open the faucet. Water's going to come out. We need to put ourselves, stand in the paths of grace, Mathis calls it. Which means we need to be in the positions to hear these kinds of messages. Which means that Sunday morning should be a massive priority for you. Because you need to be bathed in the truth of the gospel every single week. Which means that community groups need to be a priority. To be around other Christians who can remind you of what is true, what is true in the gospel. In triads with people so you can be reminded of what's true. You need to read your Bibles in the morning. I hope that doesn't sound moralistic to you. That's not moralism. It's not moralistic to say read your Bible, turn on the faucet so that God can lavish his grace on you. It's not moralistic to say wake up in the morning and pray. Seek God. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That's a promise. That's not moralism, it's a promise. Stand in the paths of grace. Stand in the paths of grace. Put yourself in places where you can just open the faucet and flip the switch so that God can lavish his mercy on you. He's standing there with open arms because it's the only answer. It's the only answer to begin to shrink the tumors of our pride and selfishness, to expose the idols that are in our hearts. What's preventing you from forgiving your spouse this morning? What is the idol in your heart that's preventing you from forgiving your spouse this morning? And I know you're sitting there thinking, you don't understand. You don't know what he did. You don't know what she said. And it's true. I don't. I wasn't there. But there is an idol in your heart that is preventing you from extending forgiveness. And it's holding you captive. You're a slave to it. You're a slave to it and it's controlling you. But there's freedom. There's freedom. 
if you would allow the gospel to shrink those tumors, to shrink those idols, to see what Jesus Christ did for you as exceedingly more significant than was ever done to you by another human being. You know, Jesus will say to us earlier in the gospels, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, it's striking about that text that maybe we've never seen before. Is he doesn't say, I have no yoke and I have no burden. He says, come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I will give to you an easy yoke. And I will give to you a light burden. It doesn't mean that coming to him makes all your problems go away instantly. It means that what he's giving you is an easy yoke and a light burden. The unforgiveness that's wrapped up in your heart is causing you to be weary It's heavy laden. It's a burden. And Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you the light and easy yoke and burden of forgiveness. Yes, it's hard. All forgiveness is first a decision. It's a decision. Forgiveness is a decision. It's not first a feeling. It's not first an emotion. In fact, at first, it's painful. It feels like suffering. It's a decision. And that decision unlocks a prison of heavy burden. Discipleship is always and ultimately following Jesus. Discipleship is not only characterized by identifiable behaviors within marriage or with children, but discipleship is expressly seen as following Jesus along the costly road to Jerusalem. The economy of power in God's kingdom is not power and control, but service and giving. So how does Jesus respond? This is driving to a close, point 2B. How does Jesus respond? He tells of his impending death, his sacrificial death in their place on their behalf. They immediately show up with pride and ego. What does he do? Well, first he reminds them again, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But then this next little passage here, verses 29 down to 34. Jesus continues to go along the way, and he comes across these two blind men. And they make this request of him. We want to see. We want to see. Have pity on us. Have mercy on us. And the word there, in verse 34, it says, Jesus had pity, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and they followed him. 
That word there that Jesus had pity is the word for compassion. It means that his heart went out to them. When he saw them in their desperate state, when he saw them in their place of blindness, he doesn't simply just pass by. It says that he's moved within himself. He has pity for them. His heart goes out to them. And he restores their sight and they follow him. What a picture. What a picture of salvation. He restores their sight and they get up and they follow him. And that's us this morning. We are like those blind men. And we need Jesus, the compassionate and tender one, for his heart to go out to us. And it does. See, that's the, that's the, 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 the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Is that even as we sit here with this inward struggle that we've been having, this inward dialogue that we've been having about forgiveness and, not, and, 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 and harboring and holding on to our idols, it's the tenderness of Jesus that comes into this place. He sees our blindness. He sees that we can't see as we ought. And he's moved with compassion. He's moved with pity to come towards us. And he does. In tenderness, he sought me. Weary and sick with sin. And on his shoulders, he brought me back to his fold again. He died for me when I was sinning. Needy and poor and blind. And he whispered to assure me, I found thee, thou art mine. Would you pray with me?